This is an ABC podcast. Good morning. This is Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. Today on the show, a new investigative media organisation in the Solomon Islands takes on the tough job of holding, holding its leaders to account... This is an area that has been missing for a long time. And Australia is committing almost $2 billion to the Pacific, most of it going to security. We'll speak to Australia's Pacific Minister to find out why. And we take you to a new exhibit in Sydney showcasing Tongan bath clock. Bark. All the materials just live so well together, you know? They come from the same kind of... They come all come from the earth. All that and more today on the show. I'm Priyanka Srinivasan. So glad to have your company. First, though, almost $2 billion. That's the figure the Australian government has pledged to the Pacific in its federal budget last night. And with that money, Australia is looking to strengthen its position as a major security provider in the region. And it also expands its, will expand its diplomatic and economic links. But absent from the budget are any major announcements on tackling climate change. Dubrovko Volodar with more. In its federal budget last night, the Australian government pledged an increase to spending in the region. Treasurer Jim Chalmers. We're upholding the security of our nation and the stability of our region, which is why we're implementing the recommendations of the Defence Strategic Review and allocating $1.9 billion to strengthening our relationships in the Pacific. The budget's biggest pledge is a security package, which is set at about $1.4 billion over four years. The broader context is geostrategic competition between the US and China. And in that, Australia is a strong ally of the US and seeks to counter what it perceives as influenced by the Chinese government, whether it might be in the cybersecurity space, development of key infrastructure that might be used as future military assets, such as ports. Mark Purcell is the CEO of the Australian Council for International Development, the country's umbrella group for NGOs. So for all of those reasons, the government is putting a lot of prioritisation and a whole raft of non-development measures, insecurity and the like. The majority of funding for this package is set to come from defence. Some of it will be used for maritime security and infrastructure projects across the region. It will include ports and joint redevelopment of the Lomrom Naval Base in Papua New Guinea. There are also plans to set more money aside for the patrol boat initiative. The government will also boost defence training and exchange programmes. Some of it actually is probably eligible to be counted as aid, uh, such as uh, police assistance and, and there's even some humanitarian relief. Professor Stephen Howes is the head of the Development Policy Centre, a think tank at the Australian National University. But for whatever reason, the government's decided not to package this as aid, but to uh, package it as a enhancing uh, Pacific engagement package. So I guess a broader package of support signalling, you know, that the Pacific's becoming more important for Australia and becoming important not just to the aid 
part of the Australian budget, but to the uh, uh, Australian government as a whole. So this package will fund a range of departments, mainly on the security side. The government has prioritised more engagement with the region since it came to power last year. Foreign Minister Penny Wong has now visited all forum member countries. Professor House says while there is a shift, the Defence Corporation in the Pacific is long-standing. Neither is new, but with uh, increased defence funding at home, with this uh, increased uh, geopolitical uh, competition with China, we are seeing an expansion of uh, existing support programs in these security areas. The past few years have not been easy ones for the Pacific, with COVID-19 and natural disasters hitting the region. The budget contains almost no new funding in foreign aid. And there has also been little new focus on climate projects, which is a priority for many Pacific countries. Mark Purcell. The overall spend is still very, very strong. Where we would want to see more announcements of packages in particular sectors uh, in this coming financial year is in climate change. Stephen Howes echoes that view. The government boosted aid in, in its October special October budget. That included additional aid for climate change, specifically in the Pacific. But, of course, the, the pressure to spend uh, on climate change uh, internationally will only grow over time. That is an area of vulnerability. The Australian government has also committed to expand the Pacific Labour Mobility Scheme, pledging $370 million. It plans to help develop workers' skills and open it up to more Pacific countries. Professor House says it will make the scheme more robust. A lot of it is actually for staffing up the various government agencies who are involved in running the scheme. Uh, so there's additional money to uh, protect and support workers and compliance. Australia funds the sending countries to employ staff in Australia to support their own workers, uh, what are called country liaison and officers, something already, Australia already funds, but there's going to be more funding for that. The Department of Foreign Affairs will also get a boost in funding and the ABC will get support to expand its coverage in the Pacific. That was Dubrovka Volodair reporting and we'll have more on the federal budget when Pacific Minister Pat Conroy joins the show in, well, about 40 minutes or so. Pacific Beat. A new online news platform in the Solomon Islands is promising to be a voice for independent investigative journalism. In-Depth Solomons hopes to strengthen Solomon Islands' democracy through the delivery of well-reported, rigorous news. But there are concerns the organisation will be faced with several challenges, including navigating corruption across the country. Cooper Williams spoke with founder of In-Depth Solomons, Afani M. This is an area that has been missing for a long time. And uh, I felt um, as someone who has been, you know, in the media for uh, for more than 20 years, it's time we we set up something to, to fill up that, that particular gap. So, yeah, that's what basically uh, In-Depth Solomons is all about. And do you want to just tell me a little bit about the news media landscape across the Solomon Islands and how you think In-Depth Solomons is going to to fill that gap or support democracy and and journalism in the Solomons? 
The media landscape here has been quite challenging. Challenging. Uh, basically, we we have a a free media. Uh, we have uh, you know an environment where journalists were uh, you know allowed to operate freely in doing their reporting, but there has been resource constraints in uh, most of the newsrooms here. They basically do day-to-day reporting on what's happening while the the the, the bigger issues uh, were not really well covered, were not really looked into, were not investigated. And so this is something that, you know, uh, in-depth Solomon has been established to, to, to pursue, to look into. And uh, I think this is what we at the In-Depth Solomons are going to do. You've partnered with OCCRP, which is the Organised Crime and um, Corruption Reporting Project. Um, how will this partnership support the work uh, of In-Depth Solomons? OCCRP has uh, uh, provided us a grant uh, that allowed us to meet our startup cost. That's the first thing they did. Uh, they have also provided us uh, with, uh, you know, some kind of training, uh, mainly in investigative journalism, which we have uh, uh, gone through with them, and it helps us a lot, put us in a in a very good state to sort of, you know, do our job. Uh, as well, uh, uh, in the uh, OCCRP has, you know, they have a, they have a, an excellent online database uh, of uh, you know information, uh, both from uh, you know online sources and other so, and other information that they have they have obtained through this through over the years through the investigations and. Uh, yeah, they, they've allowed us to access that, which uh, from what we have seen so far has helped us, will, will help a lot uh, in, the, in the kind of reporting, in the kind of, you know, investigations that we are going to undertake uh, here in the Solomons. And uh, do you think corruption is going to pose a challenge during your work with In-Depth Solomons? It's going to be a major challenge, uh, you know, uh, corruption has been very much part of uh, the system here, the, the governance and political system here in the Solomons over the years. And uh, definitely it's going to be a challenge for us. You know, we are we are a very small team at the moment. It's just uh, three of us uh, who are part of this uh, uh, initiative. Uh, we're hoping to get, uh, you know, uh, additional reporters as uh, uh, more resources are available. But, you know, even I know that, you know, investiga- investigative journalism has never been easy. It's going to be a huge and challenging task, uh, especially in a small community like ours here where resources are scarce. Uh, but, you know, I think we we have undertaken to to do this job and uh, no matter how challenging it will be uh, uh, my colleagues and I are you know sort of prepared to 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 have a go at it 
Um, what are your ambitions for In-Depth Solomons uh, in the future and going forward? Uh, it, we, we are a very small team at the moment. I wish I could get uh, more reporters uh, with, you know, with like-minded intention to be part of the team. But uh, resource-wise, we are constrained at the moment. Uh, going forward in the longer term, it's an outlet that I would like to build, grow, and uh, becoming a force to be reckoned with. Uh, I think there are, you know, uh, quite a number of uh, issues uh, uh, that are happening in this country that needs to be reported on deeply, that needs to be investigated uh, in the longer term. I want, you know, in-depth Solomons to be to be uh, an investigative newsroom that uh, brings out the kind of information that people of this country, uh, people beyond our borders, would like to read and know about. That was Solomon Islands journalist Afani Eremiak speaking there to Cooper Williams. You're listening to Pacific Beat this Wednesday morning. I'm your host Priyanka Srinivasan. Pacific women belong everywhere. That's what the director behind a new Papua New Guinean film premiering in Hollywood wants you to know. Butterfly, Butterfly, screened at the Los Angeles Asian Pacific Film Festival. In fact, that was its world debut. And it tells the story of Raya, a Papua New Guinean American who is torn between her family's strict religious beliefs and a passion for makeup. Joining us now is Papua New Guinean actress Regina Pandey, who plays Raya. Good morning to you, Regina. Good morning. Um, now, I'm really interested in this film. It revolves around this really sticky issue, the idea of identity. Did you have a lot of personal experience uh, on that topic to bring into this role? I did. Um, the story is actually inspired by um, my story. Oh. And growing, yeah, and growing up in a religious um, household where there are a lot of do's and don'ts. Yeah, and how did that um, sort of come out when you were growing up? These these do's and don'ts, and and perhaps how that how that acted with what you wanted to do. Um, so I've always been a very creative person. I've loved drawing since I was a little kid, and you know, painting. So I've always been drawn to the colorful and maybe outside of the box um, ways of doing things. And with my you know religious family. Um, a lot of that is taboo, so I, I couldn't really um, act, actively go have any of those things on me. Like, I couldn't – I had a lot of restrictions. So it, mm. it, later in life, it, it, I grew. I grew from it, and I, I learned what I was interested in and to pursue that. Yes, yes. I mean, you are, I guess, in, uh, acting now in this in this Hollywood film. Um, you know, made its premiere, as I said, at the Los Angeles Asian Pacific Film Festival. Um, did you invite your parents along? Have they checked out the film? Um, uh, my parents actually live in Ohio, so it they weren't they didn't get to come down. Um, we had some family issues back home, but um, I had my my twin sister come down for me, and uh, it was a lot of fun. And my brother is actually the co-star in the the film as well. So it was a good family um, trip down to L.A. Oh, nice. I mean, so do do your parents sort of accept um, who you are now, despite some of those struggles that you had growing up? 
Yes, um, they do. Um, it wasn't easy. Um, they definitely had a lot to say and thought um, <laughs> uh, it, it wasn't aligned with their religious views. But um, I think they learned to accept it um, the longer I kept at it because um, they didn't believe in wearing makeup. They didn't believe in um, even nail polish on mm. a lot of that stuff or wearing pants. So um, I think they got used to it after a while. <laughs> and now uh, my mom even wears nail polish, so I, they're cool. <gasps> <laughs> so you're, you're changing, I guess, their beliefs perhaps uh, a, a bit uh, as well. I, I'm, yeah. Because, I, I mean, I hear from your accent, Regina, it sounds like you um raised, perhaps born in, there in America. Um, is, there, is it also a different situation there? Because I imagine there, aren't such a, there isn't such a big uh, Papua New Guinean diaspora there. So where I grew up, we actually had a, a good uh, PNG community. Um, so it was actually harder to break free of that. And oh. growing up in America, you have all these Western ideas, freedom of expression, freedom, uh, you know, to be creative. But because we were really immersed in that PNG cult, that little tribe that we had, it was a lot harder to like break free and... Um, so when I did, it, it, it made a lot of splash. Everybody <laughs> knew about it. Oh, and how about how about for maybe your American friends, the people you went to school with and stuff? Did was also on the other side part of um, your journey, also educating them about um, PNG and you know where your family comes from. Um. Yeah, I think it was um, to my closer friends. They maybe knew about it, but it wasn't really something like we talked about um, or it was just a, a part of who I was. Yes, yes. Um, uh, and, you know, considering your history, considering the f- film was based on, on your life in parts, it seems, it must have been really emotional to, to film that and play this character, um, Rhea. Was, was it a bit of a challenge to bring that to the screen? Um, it it was, um, I think, for certain parts of the religious aspect and knowing that, you know, it, it's something that was, you were shamed into to maybe hiding. Yeah, that part was hard to relive. But um, overall, I, I loved it because it was, you know, I, I know a lot of PNG uh, girls that go through that and have a similar story. So I was really excited to share that um, so they could be seen. Yeah, because that that question of being seen, I think, I mean, it must be such a proud um, experience as an actor like you, um, Regina. And I know the the writer and director of this of this movie, um, Butterfly, also said that she wanted to challenge our invisibility um, on screen of, of um, PNG women and Pacific women more broadly. She said, "Do you connect with that message about challenging invisibility?" I do. Um, I, one of the things that I really loved about partnering with this film was the idea of um, broadening the horizon of what PNG women, you know, putting us on the map, first of all, but also broadening to, you know, Pacific Islanders mm. being black and uh, Pacific Islander. I feel like it's rare, rarely seen on the big screen, um, especially in Hollywood. Um, it's usually one type of um, Pacific Islander um, but I was so happy that um, they could see another another window into 
other islanders because uh, we're many. <laughs> um, so tell us about this short film. We've sort of touched on some of the issues around it, um, but do you have a, a bit of a summary to, to um, yeah, whet our appetite, I guess? Yeah, uh, so the main uh, character, Rhea, she loves makeup, um, but her family doesn't, and she has to struggle with her love of makeup and being a makeup artist or falling in line with her religious parents and um, playing the good uh, Christian girl. Well, yeah, it sounds like it does echo a lot of what you told us about uh, your upbringing as well, Regina. Um, how has it been? How's your career been so far? I mean, have you acted much before this? Um, how is, how's your career to, to this big movie <laughs> been? Yeah, um, this is actually my very first oh, wow. um, acting experience. And uh, so it was, a, it was a lot, but I felt um, like really supported by my director and um, she guided me through the whole experience. So it was, it was a really, I, I told, um, I told the director this, but I told her I, I was really lucky because I don't think a lot of people have that kind of experience where somebody walks you through it and, you know, really just hold your hand while you're doing it. Cause I, 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 I feel like it would have been different if it was just, you know, me going out there and, <laughs> auditioning and whatnot but it was really it was really fun and do you hope to i mean if this was your first do you hope to um continue with acting have you caught the acting bug i, I do I, I i want to act um in a lot of different things in the future also i'm going to filmmaking school so i want to do you know create my own wow. stories well, that's amazing. So you can, um, I guess, be part, as we said, to of challenging uh, Pacific women in visibility on and off screen. Um, yes. Do you have any advice for, for people who might be listening to your story, thinking, well, maybe they should try their hand in filmmaking as well? Any, any advice to aspiring Pacific actors like you? Yeah, I just uh, would say to aspiring Pacific actors that, you know, just believe in yourself and follow your passion. I think there's a lot of people who will naysay or say you know anything to put you in a box or whatever but if you believe in yourself and you follow your passion you're going to be doing great and amazing things yeah well some great words there and congratulations again regina for that um that film screened it's world premiere at the los angeles asian pacific film festival congratulations and thank you for being on our show this morning all right. <laughs> that was Regina Pandey, lead actress and makeup artist for Butterfly Butterfly, a story that, well, as she said, mirrors quite a lot of her own life. Inside Rugby League on ABC Radio Australia, hosted by ABC Sport commentator Zane Bojack. Inzane Rugby League is a weekly look at the lighter side of rugby league, featuring game insights, latest news and interviews with rugby league legends and from around the edges. So close to the action, you can almost taste the turf. Inzane Rugby League, Tuesday nights at 6pm PNG time on ABC Radio Australia, your home of rugby league in the Pacific. Hold the front page! Now it's 
that time on Pacific Beat where we find out what's making headlines and news around the Pacific. And to do that, we're joined by reporter Kyle Evans. Good morning, Kyle. Good morning, Priyanka. Um, let's start in Solomon Islands. Um, there's been a new mining operation that's about to be set up there. Um, what exactly is this mining operation? I don't believe it's an Australian company behind it. Yeah, that's right. They're an Australian-listed company, uh, Pacific Nickel Mines, uh, and they will mine the uh, Colossori Nickel Mine uh, in Isabel Province. So the company announced the news yesterday uh, via its executive director, who is in the country at the moment to oversee some of those final preparations. And it'll officially uh, be opened by the end of the year and uh, hopefully providing some much-needed foreign currency into the souls. Mm, Yes. um, uh, It's interesting, this news. Um, I I understand that Glencore, one of the biggest um, mining companies in the world, um, you know, provided some investment into this, um, this, you know, venture by Pacific and Mekel Mines. And yes, you do, you do, you did touch on the, um, you know, foreign currency into Solomon Islands. But of course, when we talk about mining across the Pacific, um, there are some concerns about the environmental impacts and and, um, how that can be managed with the surrounding communities. So obviously that, well, hopefully that's on top of mind not only with authorities, but also the company itself. Um, will it be operated by a local workforce despite being an Australian um, public company? Yeah, very much so. So the company's confirmed that the majority of the workforce will be employed uh, from the Solomon Islands during that development phase. Uh, and once it's fully operational, it will employ more than 250 people. And just on those environmental concerns, they did make a point of saying that uh, the proper technical and uh, environmental studies, feasibility studies have been carried out. Out, uh, which ultimately led to the granting of the mining lease and the export perm, uh, permit. And they have also said they have support of the landowners. So so they do say they uh, the checks and balances appear to be uh, to be ticked off. So hopefully and that's the case. Yes, we will <clears> see <throat> when um, the mining actually begins. And, and I guess it's part of a, a bigger push to get particularly nickel, um, very useful in um, things like uh, batteries. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, uh, Elon Musk, the, the owner of a number of companies, but also Tesla, said he was looking to um, ramp up nickel um, partnerships, nickel mine partnerships around the world. He, in fact, um, there was sort of new news of him um, having a, a sort of partnership with the Gorham Nickel Mine in New Caledonia as well. So a lot of interest in nickel mining. But yeah, as you mentioned, Kyle, um, also important to see that those environmental landowner, um, all those other things are ticked off in, in the search for that, for that um, well, valuable mineral. Um, and now to Vanuatu, which has confirmed two brothers wanted at, in, as fugitives in South Africa are in fact Vanuatu citizens. I imagine they were, um, they bought the citizenship um, <laughs> as part of their uh, quote unquote golden passport scheme. Is that right, Carl? Yeah, I'm assuming so. So it's a bit of an interesting story, this one. So uh, the Vanuatu Citizenship Commission uh, has confirmed South, Africa, South Africa's notorious Gupta brothers do in fact hold Vanuatu citizenship. Um, and there's not actually sufficient <clears throat> evidence to cancel their certificates uh, as of yet. So. Also, the, so the Vanuatu government says. So the Vanuatu government says. That's right, yeah. So this is reported by RNZ. And, and just for a bit of background, they're wanted in South Africa for allegedly colluding with the country's former president to siphon off uh, state assets, which ultimately cost the country uh, billions of dollars. They started a business empire over the course of about two decades before that and became quite prominent figures. Um, there was actually talk recently that they might be in Vanuatu after a request oh. to extradite them Um 
<coughs> from the UAE from the UAE was actually turned down. However, Minister John Salong, who we had on our show about the matter, actually interviewed him. Uh, he was quick to shoot down shoot down that and said they weren't they weren't in Vanuatu and they would know if they were. But he did say they would look into the matter regarding uh, that citizenship status, and uh, and appears they've done so. And um, did, did he give any detail, um, Minister Salong, about um, why there wasn't enough evidence to cancel their visas or cancel yeah. the citizenship, sorry? So according to the Financial Intelligence Unit, uh, because it's an ongoing investigation into the pair in South Africa that hasn't uh, concluded just yet, uh, some of those criminal charges, one's money laundering, uh, fraud and corruption, uh, basically they're innocent uh, until proven guilty. And uh, from what I understand, uh, they uh, they haven't been proven guilty uh, in a court yet. Ah, very interesting. Um, there was that famous case of um, Chinese citizens, Chinese nationals who had also bought Vanuatu uh, citizenship being extradited back to China. And they were involved in, um, I, I understand, some cryptocurrency um, scheme which the Chinese authorities weren't um, too happy with. Um, and there have been other cases of fugitives, of, of people with criminal alleged criminal charges overseas um, buying Vanuatu citizenship. In fact, that's the very reason that the European um, European Union decided to end a visa-free um, waiver with Vanuatu. They said there needs to be more checks and balances to um, make sure that you know criminals aren't buying these citizenship um, documents from Vanuatu. So very interesting to see this case that Vanuatu is, I, I guess, you know, standing firm and saying that they won't extradite this um, this pair of brothers to South Africa until there is more evidence. Um, yeah, one that we'll keep an eye on and, and see if we can get the, to the bottom too. Um, finally, Kyle, let's head to some sporting news. The Micronesian Games has been postponed. So when will it take place? Yeah, that's right. So it's been pushed back again, uh, this time by another year. So it's now going to be held in uh, from the 15th to the 24th of June in 2024. So the Micronesian Games Council announced a new date uh, following a virtual meeting uh, back on May 2. And yeah, like I said, it's a second time it's been postponed. It was initially scheduled for 2022. Uh, it was disrupted by COVID of back course. then. Um, this time, however, it was due to just the uh, the un- unreadiness of the uh, of, of some sports facilities within the Marshall Islands. Oh, very interesting. Um, uh, hopefully they'll be ready for, when did you say, 2024, next year? 2024, yeah, that's right. So the council and uh, the Marshall Islands Games Organising Committee have both expressed confidence that, that it will in fact be ready. So, yeah, let's hope, <laughs> let's hope that it is. I mean, it's also the, the timing of the Pacific Games. I wonder if that's also in the back mm. of their mind. Um, I'm sure a lot of athletes will, will hope will be playing for for both potentially um so perhaps it just you know um spreading them out a bit we'll we'll get them ready um and get sports fans i guess more bang for the buck <laughs> a couple more years of of um uh, regional games is always nice uh Kyle thank you for those stories thank you Priyanka. um but stay tuned here on Pacific Beach because we will have Pacific Minister Pat Conroy on the show we'll be talking about uh what's in it for the Pacific when it comes to Australia's budget it was handed down last night the budget that is, and we'll uh, look look more closely at the $2 billion that's been earmarked for the region. You're listening to Pacific Beat. Let's take you now to one of Sydney's major museums, the Museum of Contemporary Art Australia, where a group of Tongan Australian artists are developing tapa, or ngatu, as it's known in Tonga. Dobrovka Volodeir went along to meet the EVE Collective and talk to them about their latest work and design. 
Behind me here at the museum is the famous Sydney Harbour with a spectacular view of the Opera House. But right in front of me here on a wall is a big bark cloth in beautiful earthen colours featuring diamond designs. In front of that work are members of EV Collective working on another huge piece of bark cloth. Maloelele. Yeah, Maloelele. My name is Ruha Fafida. I'm one of the three lead artists. Maloelele. My name is Manaira Fafida, and I am also one of the three lead artists of this Katukala project. Now, this tapa you're working on right now is huge. How big is it? So this one is just under just under eight meters long by almost four meters wide and yeah, with about four layers of bark cloth. The bark cloth or ngatu as we call it, uh, once it reaches the stage of being painted is that we're working on at the moment. So the colour is, is quite an earthen, orangey colour, that's how I would describe it. Mm, yeah. They're so, oh, I feel like all the materials just live so well together, you know? They come from the same kind of, they come, all come from the earth and uh, in some cases from the same earth and you really see, I mean, you feel that in working with them, it's really special. We are developing designs uh, as we paint, and so we've started with a design called the Manulua, which is kind of this yeah, very geometric shape of triangles, kind of in radial symmetry. It has, it's very recognizable, I think, as a Pacific pattern, maybe even with correlations to other countries around the world, but it's been associated with this idea of the coming together of two very different groups or the union of different groups or families. We're integrating those insights into, into new designs that are emerging across the artwork. Tell me a bit more about the design process. You held workshops with communities in the Pacific. How did that play into it? So we've engaged in, I guess, workshops, but we've called them learning spaces because, in essence, it's not so much designed for us to run something for other people, but to create the space where we can all delve into certain ideas. We've, you know, spent time in Wyburn and Thursday Island, in our own community in Logan, uh, in Tamaki in Auckland, in Aotearoa, Fiji, specifically in Suva, and with friends from Mobe Island, in Tonga, with uh, friends and family living in Tatakamotonga, Hapai and Baba'o Island groups. Uh, in Hawaii, yeah, really excited by being here. Uh, it's allowed us to, to really advance conversations with friends that live in Western Sydney and Mount Druitt. So that culture of sharing, which is so important for Pacific communities, has become part of the art. Yeah, so you, you realise what comes at the end. You could have never done without every single contribution or uh, without on your own at all. <laughs> what do you hope to convey through it? I guess one of the things that we're really looking at is this vision of being able to acknowledge uh, the oneness of, of us all. <laughs> yeah, seeing that everyone has tools and cultural kind of forms of artistic expression that can help us delve into these ideas more fully. Would you say that through this process you are developing new patterns, new shapes? Yes, yeah. <laughs> the process has been creating new designs and symbols, but really giving meaning to the symbols through the conversations and what's really trying to be talked about. Um, this artwork is something that we're hoping to eventually um, return to these spaces with because it's been used as a tool through these conversations with people and we know that it will continue a life of its own after. And the symbols, how they continue to be talked about is what gives it 
give them meaning, really. Barcloth has a big cultural significance, but also a practical purpose. Tell me a little bit about how these two sides go together. During our time growing up in, in Tonga uh, together, it was very much... Um, you, you started something very clear on its purpose. So it was, and that, that purpose was, you know, it was to honor a person or a particular event or... Yeah, they're attached, you know, tapa are associated with all these most significant times that map out a person's life. In a similar way, um, it was important that uh, it was to honor the time and place that we're in. It was, very, you know, consciously, but also that could be used as a tool by those communities. So the exhibit will be on until July. Do you aim to finish it by then? Confidently, with the, with the amount of um, color and design that we're hoping to to um, reflect on this artwork. It won't be at its complete painting form in July. There will be um, leaps and bounds made, um, but it will continue after. The curator of the exhibition is Jane Devery. There's actually very strong Pacific dimension to um, this iteration of the exhibition, and, and Ivy's work is a very good example of that. It is enormous, and so it, it takes it occupies quite a central part of the exhibition. I like to think of it as kind of a symbolic heart of the exhibition in a way. It's certainly an active part of the exhibition, and, and it's changing. You know, week by week, it's changing as the work is being painted and progressing. What do visitors here at the museum think? I guess initially, I just thought that it was very eye-catching and beautiful. Uh, but then we spoke to um, one of the assistants earlier just about a, a bit of the background and history and the collaborative nature of what they're doing. Um, and I think it's incredible. Yeah, just love it. And I, I love the collaborative aspect of it because it's hard to, like often when people collaborate, it's just like you're just using other people as resources. But this feels like there is genuine collaboration with the communities. It's beautiful. <laughs> The bar cloth will go back to the artists when the exhibition ends in July. That is Dubrovka Volodya there at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Sydney here in Australia. And we will stay in touch with Ruha and Min Aira and Fifita to find out more of where the Nyatu will go next. So stay tuned. Join me, Hilda Wayne, for Sisters Let's Talk. I'll be interviewing incredible guests and discussing issues that are in the hearts and minds of Pacific women. So many times I would run to the police station. They would just tell me, sorry, we can't help you. It's domestic affairs. And I'm like, life is at stake. Why can't you help? So join me, Hilda Wayne, for Sisters Let's Talk. Wednesdays at 3.30 p.m. PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. You are listening to ABC Radio Australia. My name is Priyanka Srinivasan. And as we heard earlier in the show, Australia is putting almost $2 billion into the Pacific. But where exactly will that money go? To find out, we have Australia's Pacific Minister, Pat Conroy, on the line. Good morning to you, Minister. Good morning. How are you? I'm well. Now, most of this money uh, is actually going to security in the Pacific, things like developing Pacific wharves, defence training, funding for Papua New Guinea and Fiji's air forces. Is that really what the people of the Pacific want Australia to prioritise? Well, we're listening to our partner governments, and that's very important to emphasise that when we discuss our funding priorities, it's listening to the priorities of Pacific governments and the people. We show up, 
we listen and we show respect. And one of the key messages we've got from governments of the Pacific is that they need help with infrastructure, uh, particularly the Pacific Maritime Security Program that we run to, to combat illegal fishing, and they'd like more support around policing in the Pacific. And so uh, of the $1.9 billion, yes, there's a big security component, and a big chunk of that is supporting policing and law and justice in the Pacific, which I know is a key priority for governments uh, in our region. But Minister Conroy, I mean, you say it's a priority of, of Pacific governments, but is it is it mainly Australia's priority? I mean, it sounds very similar to some of the agreements China is pending with um, uh, with Pacific governments. Is this really just an outcome of China's own increasing security influence in the region? Well, first, I should put this in context. This is a one point nine billion dollar package. Over three hundred million dollars of it is supporting the Pacific Labor Scheme to increase remittance flows back to the Pacific and uh, uh, provide further protection to workers. There's also money for deep... Oh, I think we just lost the minister there, but um, is, I, I hope... No. Meaning cultural connections, and this is on top of uh, everything we do. Oh, sorry, sorry, Minister. You did just cut out, and I and we will go. We'll we will go into some of the um, other money and the other funding that this, um, as you said, this one point nine billion dollar funding is going to. But I return to the question on security. I mean, one point four billion of that one point nine billion is going to security. So again, I, I ask: Is this simply an outcome of of China's own increasing security in the in the region? It's an outcome of listening to our partners. I'll give you an example. I was in Tonga. Uh, at the end of last year, and one of the key messages when I sat down with the Prime Minister and the Commissioner of Police was they were keen for more investment uh, to support their policing needs. Uh, Tonga faces challenges uh, through things like, for example, transnational crime, Tonga being a a cross-shipment point across the Pacific. So they were keen for further support for policing in the region, when I sit down with the government of Papua New Guinea, they're very clear with me. They'd like more support, more infrastructure support for their police force, uh, more training, more equipment. So we respond to the priorities of the Pacific. That is what being part of the Pacific family is about. And that's what governments of the Pacific have said to us is a critical priority. Mm. Well, I'll put it in another way, Minister. Are you worried that if Australia didn't come to the table when it comes to the security agreements and, and security funding, that China might? Well, we're, we're putting into action the spirit of the PIF leaders declaration from last year, which, which is that the Pacific should look to itself for its security needs. That if any member of the Pacific family has security requirements, they should look to other members of the Pacific family to provide that security first. And this package is a practical manifestation of uh, the PIF leaders communication, uh, communicating. That's why I'm so proud of it. It's about the Australian government showing up, showing respect and listening to the priorities of the region. Mm. And now the Pacific has said time and time again that the region's biggest threat, including its security threat, is climate. But there's very, very little new investment on climate in this budget compared to security. How do you justify that? Well, I think you need to place it in context of everything else we're doing. First, um, we've provided uh, a $1.4 billion increase in official development assistance in the October budget last year. Uh, the assistance to the Pacific reaches record highs of $1.9 billion, and a big component of that 
is a, a ODA related to climate change, both reducing emissions and dealing with the inevitable impacts of climate change. So our, our development assistance it has had its highest increase since 2011, and that has a focus on climate change, is my point one. Point two is the fact that uh, this government has listened to the priorities of the Pacific, and climate change is the number one security issue for the Pacific, and that's why we've passed... Uh, climate laws in Australia to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions by 43% by 2030 on the way to net zero by 2050, pass a safeguard mechanism to actually provide the institutional support to drive those emissions down and are playing a much stronger role in international climate change debates. For example, at the PIF uh, foreign ministers meeting last year, I announced that Australia would be supporting Vanuatu's uh, process to get an international court of justice uh, uh, opinion on climate change. That's a significant change from last uh, Australian government. We are bidding to host a, a UN climate conference in conjunction with the Pacific. So this is a government that's all in on fighting climate change. And we absolutely agree that it's the number one priority for the governments and peoples of the Pacific. And that's what we're doing as well. Um, and let's let's turn now to um, Pacific migration to Australia. It's something that our listeners really want to know about, specifically the Pacific engagement visa to get more Australian permanent residents from the Pacific into the country. Will the government be investing in that? Well, we've made significant investments in the Pacific engagement visa. This is a revolutionary change in Australia's migration system to allocate at least 3,000 permanent migration spots to one region, the Pacific, uh, which we proudly do as a member of the Pacific family. And we're very keen to get the scheme up and running. Importantly, Pacific countries determine, we determine in conjunction with Pacific countries how many uh, people will come from each Pacific country. Some countries uh, see the potential more than others. So this is something that will be determined in conjunction with Pacific governments. But this is all about building the people-to-people links uh, in the Pacific. And there's huge amounts of support for newly arrived Pacific migrants under this scheme. There won't be the normal waiting periods for most um, uh, social support measures that um, other permanent residents would get. So that's uh, recognition of our when, special relationship with the Pacific. When will it happen, though, Minister? I mean, it's earmarked for July. Is that still expect, expected, that that's when it'll pass and, and um, you'll start accepting applications from the Pacific? Well, we'll see. We, we still have to get it through the Australian Senate. The, uh, the opposition is embarked on a bizarre strategy of opposing it. They're opposing the Pacific engagement visa ostensibly because they object to the lottery a ballot system that we will be using to select participants. That's a critical part of it. It's been modelled on the successful green card scheme in the United States and the New Zealand scheme uh, uh, because unless you have a random ballot selection of people who are pre-qualified, you do face issues of brain drain. But under the mm-hmm. system we've got, a uh, school leaver from the Pacific has as much chance of being selected as a lawyer, a teacher or a doctor. And so that random ballot part of the system is critical and it's incredibly irresponsible of the opposition to oppose that. Uh, it undermines the whole scheme and it undermines our attempts to improve the, our relationships with the Pacific. So mm. we're working hard to get the numbers in the Senate uh, and once we've got those numbers, we'll pass the legislation and we'll get it into operation. Uh, when I go around the Pacific, governments and people are really excited by the Pacific Engagement Visa because it's all about building the people-to-people links uh, between uh, countries in our region and that can only be a good thing for our region. Mm, yes. Well, we are almost um, out of time, Minister, but I did want to ask you, there is no increase in aid in this budget. Um, is that fair considering that many Pacific countries are still recovering from COVID lockdowns and major disasters? Well, that's actually incorrect. Um, there's a, uh, 
uh, a, a, a small increase in the annual appro- uh, annual amount going to the Pacific but, this year. But not, not an yes. increase in the percentage. Uh, and secondly, uh, we have restored uh, the 2.5% indexation um, uh of the uh, ODA, the Official Development Assistance. So uh, we had the biggest increase in um, foreign aid in official development assistance, overseas development assistance uh, since 2010-11. We are providing record amounts to the Pacific and that is going up. And uh, we're proud of our efforts there. This is a critical part of us supporting uh, the Pacific family uh, and developing their, uh, their priorities. Mm. Uh, and what I'm saying to you is it's going up. It'll continue to go up. In but there is criticism that the overall percentage, which I believe stands at 0.2%, is, is below um, what, what the UN, in fact, advises. Well, there's many ways of counting the percentage of G&I. I know, for example, some countries uh, count onshore. Um, well, we'll, we'll have to um, agree to disagree, Minister, because we are out of time. But thank you for going through this. We'll invite you back on the show to clear some of that up. Thank you, Mr. Stronroy. <laughs> 